0: Just a warning that the following film review will contain spoilers for Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. And it also contains spoilers for Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan. So if you haven't seen either film, I do recommend you checking out both movies before you listen to the following review. And now on with the show. Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. I cover all eras of film there. You can read them all at my website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcast. It is called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, and you can easily find that link at my website, Quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the third part of what's going to be a six-part series looking at Star Trek films, not only of the 1980s, but basically the original cast Star Treks. I'm not counting Star Trek Generations in that series for obvious reasons. That was really the kickoff of The Next Generation. Today, I'm going to be looking at Star Trek III, The Search for Spock that came out in 1984. It is a PG-rated film. It does have violence and some mild language. The runtime is an hour and 45 minutes. Bringing back William Shatner, DeForest Kelly, Leonard Nimoy, George Takei, Walter Koenig, Nichelle Nichols. We also have returning cast members like Merritt Buttrick and Mark Leonard, who also appeared on the original Star Trek television show. Christopher Lloyd makes his debut here, along with Dame Judith Anderson, James Sicking, John Larroquette is also in the film. You wouldn't really recognize him. He's in Klingon makeup throughout. The director here is Leonard Nimoy, marking the first time, I believe, that an actor in Star Trek has helmed a film or even an episode. Harv Bennett, the producer of the Star Trek series at this point in film form, does write the screenplay. Now, this is the third entry in the Star Trek film series, and it was announced shortly before the release of The Wrath of Khan that this was coming out. And I think that that was done by Paramount mostly to stave off the blowback that the makers were receiving for killing off Spock in Star Trek 2. Now, at that time, they referred to the next film very coyly as Star Trek Three: In Search of Spock. That was kind of a tongue-in-cheek nod to Leonard Nimoy's television series called In Search Of. When Star Trek II opened to the biggest opening weekend in box office history to that point, Paramount really put the green light in right away. They told producer Harve Bennett to immediately get to work on Star Trek III. Nicholas Meyer was not going to return, though. He felt that the death for Spock was final, and he was disappointed at the studio for tampering with his ending to The Wrath of Khan. Of course, if Paramount wanted to please fans beyond just looking for Spock's essence, they'd need Leonard Nimoy to agree to return. When Parama approached Nimoy, he stated he was interested in guiding the direction of Star Trek, not just be a player. He offered to do this by joining on as the director for Star Trek III, something both he and William Shatner had been asking for. They wanted to direct episodes of the original show, but they were denied. At least Shatner was given an opportunity, but the show ended before he could do it. Nimoy felt that the first film was more about the Enterprise as an entity, the second film was more about Khan settling an old score with Kirk, and the third movie he thought it should be about the characters as friends, they are willing to make sacrifices to help one of their own who had fallen, they would act as a team to make sure their lineup stays intact. Now, Paramount was positive but had preliminary doubts because Nimoy had yet to direct a film before much less a big budget epic like Star Trek. He did have some experience in directing though. He did theater productions. He took a training program for directors at MGM back in the early 1960s. He directed some television. He did uh, Night Gallery Rod Serling's show from the early 70s an episode of The Powers of Matthew Starr that was kind of a one season thing and Harv Bennett actually executive produced the episode that Nimoy directed. He also directed William Shatner before. He did an episode of TJ Hooker in 1983, kind of as a warm-up to get back into how to direct. And from there, Nimoy used his experience in Star Trek to pitch ideas he had for some time to convince Paramount of his vision and how it would be the right way to go with the franchise. He would put in the requisite visual effects in the Starship Battles, but those would be the gravy. The characters, their loyalties, they would provide the foundation to build upon going forward. And the actors would sell this because they were good actors. They don't often get a chance to shine, but he was going to allow that. His pitch to Paramount was that he would not be a problem in making the film, but he would be a solution to continuing the franchise out on the right course. He would make a film he knew that diehard fans would would enjoy. now. After a bit of back and forth, Paramount was interested enough in Nimoy's vision to tell him to come up with a story to develop. And they would consider it. After a series of meetings with Nimoy, producer Harv Bennett set about writing the screenplay based on ideas that they brainstormed to deliver all of the things that they wanted to see in Star Trek 3. They knew they had to settle some of the unresolved questions from the previous film. For instance, obviously, is Spock truly dead? Why did he mind meld with bones before he was going to die? Is the Enterprise repairable? It had been heavily damaged in the fight with Khan, and will Kirk connect with his son? Kirk discovered he had a son, so what's going to happen there? The script outline carried the title Return to Genesis. An early draft of the script by Bennett had Romulans as the enemy, and the title had at some point changed to The Search for Spock. They planned to come up with a better name at some point, but obviously it seemed to stick. The Romulans in this early script plan to mine the Genesis planet for its abundance of dilithium crystals, and there they discover Spock's empty coffin. As the Enterprise ends up heading back to Earth, Spock's spirit appears on board, altering the ship's course to Vulcan, where they learn from Spock's father Sarek, played by Mark Leonard, that Spock's body must be returned to Vulcan so his essence may have final peace. After they return to Earth, Kirk gets into trouble for disobeying orders that we saw in Star Trek II, and he starts muttering about Spock's ghost, and he ends up kind of getting thrown in the clink. He gets sprung, though, and the crew ends up stealing the Enterprise, they head to Genesis to get Spock's body, and then they have a skirmish with a Romulan ship that's out in orbit of the planet, and then that's where the Enterprise gets destroyed as the crew beams down to the surface of Genesis where they get captured at the Romulan mining operation. They are saved by none other than Spock in flesh and blood, showing signs of madness at that time. The Genesis planet is falling apart as well, and Kirk plays this gambit to beam them aboard the orbiting Romulan ship where they take control and head back to the Federation as Genesis disintegrates. That was the original story idea. Bennett liked these ideas, but they were too many to include into a single movie, he felt. There were a lot of side stories that they also included in that script. Savik falling for Kirk, David and Carol Marcus being showcased in their future careers, They knew that they had to streamline all of this stuff into a very tangible plot. Nimoy ended up giving Bennett some pretty sage advice with his many years of Star Trek experience. He suggested that rather than Romulans, they should go with Klingons. They were nastier, and they would make for a more formidable adversary. They wouldn't want things like dilithium. They would want the Genesis formula because it had destructive power. They did like the bird of prey design of the ship that they planned for the Romulans, so they decided that the Klingons should go with this ship. They had already built the design of this thing. They wanted to go with it, that Klingons would naturally be a race that would steal from the Romulans this bird-like design. Nimoy also introduced into the story this Ponfar ritual. If you ever saw Muck Time, the original Star Trek television show episode, Spock would have to undergo, every seven years as he aged, this kind of mating ritual as part of the Vulcan race. For males, it was at this time that they got the idea that the planet would be rapidly evolving along with Spock. They could eliminate Spock's ghost because Spock had done a mind meld. Spock's Katra, his essence, would speak through Bones McCoy as a result of their melding of minds in Star Trek II. Now Gene Roddenberry, he worked as executive consultant again on Star Trek III. He was the one who made the suggestion that Genesis was unstable because it had a volatile type of protomatter injected as a shortcut to make it all work. This solved two issues with Genesis as a potential plot device, because it was so powerful, it was probably going to be dominating so much of future episodes, future television series. They wanted it to kind of end here. So by highlighting it as a very dangerous thing, it would explain why Genesis would not be used in future and connected David into the storyline. He was made the scientist who had injected that proto-matter illegally. Cheating would be punished in its way. It's kind of a moralistic way of doing the Star Trek films. David would end up paying for it with his life Kirk had also done some things that probably were shortcuts. He defied Federation orders, and so, as a result, he loses his son and the Enterprise in Star Trek III. Now, those decisions did not meet well with some fans, and including Gene Roddenberry. He despised the end of the Enterprise and says it was the film's greatest mistake. Some Star Trek fans did not also care for David dying in this film. They felt that he was introduced in the previous one, and then nothing was really done with him before he was out the door. Even if fans felt some chagrin at this, the actor who portrayed him, Merritt Buttrick, he did express some relief about his character's demise. He wanted to move on to other things as an actor before he would be typecast as Kirk's son forevermore. So he was okay with it. However, he did have some qualms about his role getting minimized in this film from what was written in the script. There were some very poignant scenes involving him that he thought would be showcasing of his talent. Kirk's final words to him were also cut out. Now, Nimoy, at that point, he was satisfied with the script and he was ready to shoot. And Paramount did agree, except for one thing. They did not think that the end to the film, with the crew stuck on the planet Vulcan, was the best choice. They felt that the film should resolve earlier, with an epilogue, after the climactic battle with Spock coming to feel like his old self while in the sickbay, of the Klingon Bird of Prey as they head home. They wanted it to return back to normal. Nimoy fought hard to resolve these Vulcan scenes as the right choice for the character and the series up to that point. He knew that it would be meaningful to the Star Trek audience to have Spock welcomed by and among his people and among his close friends, even if studio executives did not understand that personal appeal. He felt fans connected with these characters, and it would have emotional potency. Now, William Shatner had his own qualms in the end about the script. He had issues with Kirk specifically being a passive player in the way that it was written instead of the center of the action. He wanted more to do. He listed some changes he wanted to be made, and so Nimoy and Bennett wanted to make sure all sides were satisfied, so they expanded Kirk's catalyst role in the film, and they retained individual moments for each other character to find a way to contribute. Now, making a Star Trek film is not really easy because it does require that principal cast wanting to return. Each actor feels that they should get an increasing amount of screen time and a lot more things to do. So Bennett tried to make sure to include individual moments for each actor to shine and remain integral to the overall plot. Now, the one dynamic that was different, though, is that Nimoy was the director, and he was a bit green. So he was initially met with skepticism as a director, not only by the studio, but the cast as well, who knew him for decades. The studio kept him under tight supervision. They wanted to make sure he stayed on track. The rest of the cast, who viewed Nimoy for many, many, many years as one of their own, they needed time to adjust to this new role of seeing him in charge. It was a bit awkward at first, but Nimoy ended up assuring them over and over that their acting was the glue that held the entire property together, so they soon recognized that Eventually, that they were in good hands with a director who understood the importance of Star Trek being the core team and their camaraderie, and he would trust them to know what worked best for their own characters in their scenes. He didn't have to direct them as individual actors that much. He knew them all well. He knew their strengths. He knew their weaknesses, and that they all had individual contributions to make. This was not going to be the Kirk and Spock show, as so many others had made the rest only serving as the chorus. They would not be included into a scene just as background dressing. They would have something important to do if Nimoy was going to utilize them. Now, Star Trek III does replace Kirstie Alley as Lieutenant Savick. Robin Curtis was the replacement. She was here on the recommendation from Paramount's head of casting, who happened to be a personal friend of hers. Reportedly, Alley felt that she should get more money to do a larger role in the third film, but the producers felt her demands were too high. There was an initial thought to leave Savick out of the film altogether, but Nimoy felt that there should be a female Vulcan presence to help Spock through Ponfar as he rapidly aged, so they decided to go with another actor to play Savick. Nimoy knew that the key to playing a Vulcan was not as one who is incapable of emotions, but as one who is trying to stave out emotions that are naturally there. He liked Robin Curtis because she exhibited that same facet of emotional control, but that sense that underneath that calm exterior, there were emotional wheels that were turning at all times that were being squashed down. Curtis did not draw upon Ali's performance for inspiration. She hadn't seen either of the Star Trek films prior to playing the role. In fact, she was not really familiar that much with Star Trek altogether. She relied solely on Nimoy's direction to play the part the way that he saw fit. The special effects, once again, were done by industrial light and magic. They were brought in at the earliest stage possible to make sure that the film stayed on budget and on time. Nimoy was least familiar with the technical side of filmmaking, but he was experienced enough in science fiction to know how things should look on the screen. So Nimoy ended up working closely with Ken Ralston and his ILM team to make sure that they stayed on the same wavelength. There were new ships that they were going to construct, including the Federation ships like the Excelsior and the Grissom, the Klingon Bird of Prey, of course, and the design of the space dock. So before they were involved early in the script development process, Bennett was able to incorporate many of the design ideas that the ILM team had into creating drama within his script, including a scene in which the Enterprise has to deal with the closed doors of the space dock and a subsequent chase by the USS Excelsior. Now, where Nimoy had to sacrifice due to the budget was the new sets, especially on Ground Zero of the Genesis planet. He had planned for massive shifts in climate, seismic events, snowstorms, volcanic activity, fires, earthquakes. It was all going to be very operatic. He wanted it to be a big space opera Wagnerian. However, Paramount limited them to one soundstage to be allowed for the entire Genesis planet, and so it would become obvious that for those scenes, it was going to be set in a studio because it was very claustrophobic. The interior of the Klingon Bird of Prey was also very restrictive. They had to limit actors that could fit onto the screen to just maybe two or three. It would require a lot of close ups that kind of increased the artificiality because you could see the makeup and the hair, and you know, you could see all of the seams of the film. And that's kind of one of the criticisms for Star Trek 3. Nimoy tried to use this confinement to his advantage to make the Those close-ups seem very intense, very personal. Something never usually afforded the Klingon characters in past episodes of the television show. Cataclysmic events would have to take place without a lot of confinement or restriction to get the cast and crew involved. So the scope had been much more limited than Nimoy had in mind in the way that he wanted to increase the scope of the film. The close-up action might make some of what we see look obviously fake. But Nimoy was convinced that if they delivered a gripping story with great characterizations audiences would overlook any flaws they saw in the production design. Did they, though? Star Trek 3 doesn't get a lot of mention from the Star Trek series. Whether people love it or hate it, it's just kind of one of those films that is there for some people. It's sandwiched between... I think the two standout entries in the Star Trek film series, Star Trek Three had been deemed a weaker entry because someone made an observation that the even-numbered films were the good ones and the odd-numbered ones were the bad ones. So it ended up getting kind of lumped in there. I don't think it was always fair. A lot of people still think Star Trek Three is a very respectable film. But it depends on what you're looking for. It doesn't have the action of Star Trek II. So if you're looking for action in Star Trek, definitely it's considered a disappointment there. It doesn't have the lightness, the comedy of Star Trek IV. But it does stand up on its own for being a thought-provoking and emotion-driven episode in the saga. Now, as far as enjoying it, though, I think... It's a little bit different than the rest of the series because it is a bridge film, because they had something that they had to achieve from the previous film to get the rest of the films in the series back to a kind of status quo. And along those lines, it's also one that you can't really enjoy as much as a single film, unlike the others. It really should not be viewed without having seen Star Trek To The Wrath of Khan. It's a direct sequel. It picks up where the previous film left off. You have the heroic death of Spock to save his comrades. The title does offer up hopes that Spock may actually be alive, and the entire movie does concern exploring possibilities as to how this might have happened, but unless you're completely oblivious to all things Star Trek. I think you already know the answer to the mystery going in there. Obviously, the Star Trek series continued with Leonard Nimoy, so most people know that. These days, even if they haven't seen the film... But at the time it was released, it really was not known. The only mention of Leonard Nimoy in the opening credits comes as director. In fact, there's kind of a beat between William Shatner's name appearing in the opening credits and Forrest Kelly, just to tease you that you're not supposed to know that Leonard Nimoy does make an appearance in the film. Every effort had been made in keeping the ultimate fate of Spock under wraps to the moving-going public, and all in all, I do think it was quite brilliantly executed at the time, even though today... You kind of take it for granted that Spock's going to come back. The film does start with the weary Enterprise crew returning home after their near-death battle with Khan. The actual death of Spock in that film... His body is torpedoed to the Genesis world, which is this newly developing planet, and while all involved are a bit worse for the wear, the biggest effect on any of the crew members seems to be with Dr. McCoy, who is exhibiting some strange behavior that suggests he may be cracking from his experience. He's babbling something about returning to Spock's homeworld of Vulcan. Spock's father, Sarek, is convinced that Spock's essence has somehow been transferred to to another before his death through a mind meld, which would explain McCoy's behavior. With an unknown life form detected on Genesis, Kirk wants to visit and find out if Spock's body has been reincarnated, but the instability of the area makes it off-limits to anyone but science officers. So Kirk and company end up hijacking their old ship, the Enterprise, against orders, and they find that murderous Klingons have discovered news of the Genesis project and they're willing to kill anyone in order to gain information on the process. And that's the plot as it ended up appearing in the film. Now, although Star Trek Three never does reach the fever pitch of its predecessor, it does have the most character touches of any Star Trek outing to date, including the television show. Fans who enjoy the characters and their importance to one another, it's going to be a very worthwhile drama for them. It does feature good heartfelt dialogue. It has very finely drawn characterizations from the script by Harve Bennett. The score by James Horner, who also scored The Wrath of Khan, is outstanding. It adds a perfect sense of mystique integral to the story and as you'd expect the special effects are also very well handled the backdrops the sets are gorgeous despite the limitations and the artificiality of some of that now there are some nitpicks that i have with the film not a perfect movie. There's some footage early on from the Enterprise's security cameras to determine where Spock's Catra went. That's really shot-for-shot shot sequences that we saw in Star Trek 2. I don't know how those security cameras end up editing the film the way that Nicholas Meyer had kind of put it together. The Klingons often switch back and forth in their conversations between speaking Klingon and English in ways that are not very consistent the crew of the Enterprise takes over a Klingon bird of prey without a lot of muster fuss as to how they're going to navigate it. Kirk ends up offering a hand to try to save the big bad Klingon boss Krug, played by Christopher Lloyd. But Krug was the reason why his son was murdered. It doesn't really make sense given that Kirk is very unforgiving of the Klingons in many other respects. David Marcus, we're supposed to believe, a relatively young and inexperienced scientist, he's in his 20s, somehow single-handedly introduced something into the Genesis bomb that made it unstable, even though it probably was something that took a collaborative effort among a myriad of scientists to come up with such a device, along with extensive research for longer than he was probably alive to achieve, not to mention Star Trek II established Carol Marcus, David's exceedingly brilliant mother, was the leader of that project, so she would be keeping close tabs on him. You know, these nitpicks are things you probably think about when you've seen this film quite a few times. The test audiences, despite all of those nitpicks, responded very positively to the film. Paramount brass also enjoyed what Nimoy had delivered, and before the movie opened, they asked him to direct the next film in the series, feeling that he had a unique vision that worked very well, not only for management, but the actors and the crew seemed quite responsive to him. Disruptions to the filmmaking process that existed for the previous two films had been mostly eliminated all around for Star Trek III. There wasn't a lot of contention from the creative crew. So it was a success, even though it made slightly less than the previous effort. It would take in about $76 million at the box office, off of a budget of about $16 million, so that was a bona fide hit. There was strong exhibitor interest before it was released. They increased the rollout to 1,966 screens. That was a record at the time for the widest release of any motion picture to that point. And its $16.7 million opening weekend take was the best non-holiday weekend debut for any film up to that point as well. However, despite that head start, Star Trek II did take in more with less of a budget, likely due to being a film that fostered more repeat viewings. You could watch Star Trek II over and over and still enjoy it. Star Trek III was very heavy and very dark, not something that a lot of people wanted to re-experience every week in the theater. So, from that respect, I guess it did make less money. Now, Star Trek 3 doesn't have the broader appeal of the other Star Trek films, so I do think it's mainly recommended for those who are sufficiently familiar with the series, both on television and in the motion pictures. You should not expect a continuation of the adrenaline-charged Star Trek II or the Space Odyssey that was Star Trek The Motion Picture. This is really a film about those characters and how much they mean to one another. If you have an investment in those characters, it would mean much more to you as well. It is handcuffed by trying to restore the series, Back to status quo after being irreparably changed by the loss of one of its most popular members. It may not enjoy the creative freedom allowed the other entries, but for what it is, I do think that Star Trek Three is remarkably insightful and it does get the job done with surprising intelligence without a lot of silly gimmicks or these hackneyed twist developments. It's a straight shot, very simple pleasure, and I do think that if you're a Star Trek fan, Star Trek Three is strongly recommended, and I think that you will appreciate it most. So for all of that, I do think that it is a good film, and that's why I'm going to give Star Trek Three. Three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means that I do think it's a good film. Just make sure that you've seen Star Trek 2 before that. And the more familiar you are with the original Star Trek episodes of the television show, I think the more bang for your buck you're going to get out of it as well. So if you're a Star Trek fan, it definitely will deliver. If you're a passive Star Trek fan, I do think that you have to kind of go along with the flow in order to keep up with the series. But still, there is a lot here to like. So three and a half stars out of four is what I give Star Trek III. Now, I gave four stars to Star Trek II. There's going to be one more film in this series that I think qualifies as potential best Star Trek film made. And that is the film I'm going to be talking about for the next episode. That is called Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. A very light, very funny. It's kind of a comedy in its own way. And a refreshing delivery, it really was the right Star Trek to follow up this very dark and personal look at the characters. So check that out for next week. Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home from 1986 on next week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If you have your own thoughts on Star Trek Three or the Star Trek series as a whole, you can write to me and let me know what you think. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. You can also go there to find links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, Instagram, or just my email. You can even leave comments at the end of my written reviews. Any of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me and let me know what you think. And until next time, thanks everyone for joining me on this trip around the world and around the Genesis planet, but not too close. I'm old enough. I don't need to get any older in 80s movies.